Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. And Daniel, it's an intelligent speech miracle, another bonus episode on something that we're doing for intelligent speech. How about yes. that? It's it's amazing. Uh, one would almost think that it's going to be a great event and that it's super important and that all of our listeners would really enjoy it. <laughs> yep. Uh, you and I are going to be there talking about Borges, and it's going to be coming up this Saturday, so there's still time to grab a ticket and sit on in. So if you want to hear Daniel and I talk about Borges, that would be a great thing, and there are tons of other great speakers, and if you check the show notes for today, you can find the website to see everything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. One of and the one other thing- things that's going on... Oh, I, I just also wanted to note that uh, there are going to be four simultaneous channels, basically. Like, there's a lot of content. You won't be able to see all of it live. But if you do buy a ticket and you are an attendee to the Intelligent Speech Virtual Conference, later on, all of those sessions will be uploaded for everyone who paid their admission price. So even though you, of course, are going to be choosing to, you know, watch myself and Claude uh, at, at our time slot you'll be able to go back and see whatever some other dummies had to say about something else at the same time. So it's really super cool. Not only with the, with the price of your ticket, you not only get the live experience of, you know, sitting in on a live session and having Q and a, you also get like the whole vastness, like what, like 20 hours worth of content. It's pretty great. Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing. The, the virtual setup opens up all kinds of possibilities. And, you know, last year, I think it was uh, a sort of, not makeshift, but kind of a make-do session due to COVID and everything. This year, it looks like they really expanded the possibilities and are really taking advantage of, I, I guess, the distance. You don't exactly get to schmooze, though there are other kinds of opportunities for, for doing so. <laughs> so <laughs> please check it out. But one of the other things that I'm going to be doing is being part of a panel on Lost Connections in Language and Literature. It's with Dan Morris, Ray Belli, and Kevin Stroud. So we're going to be talking about, well, Lost Connections, about stories or words or narratives or other kinds of ideas that for some reason we don't quite have a full handle on the full story. Something got lost over time. 
and there can be sort of tantalizing hints about what would have been or could have been. Well, my part of the panel is going to be addressing a sort of great mystery of restoration writing. Here's the gist of it. John Milton, uh, once he was part of the Puritan government, was basically the head propagandist and, and sort of the head of communications. So he had been trying to get Andrew Marvell, the, the poet and politician whom he knew, mm-hmm. as part of the government for a long time. And after a couple of years, the, the protectorate sort of finally accepted him into a bureaucratic position working sort of under Milton, perhaps not exactly directly, but in that office. Okay. <clears throat> At a certain point, John Dryden, who in the next generation after the Restoration becomes the most important poetic figure, he becomes the poet laureate. He writes uh, a poetic defense of the Church of England eventually becomes a Roman Catholic, sort of following the times and following along with yeah. Charles I, or, or sorry, not Charles I, Charles II and James II. John Dryden had marched with Milton and Marvell in Oliver Cromwell's funeral procession and had written a receipt for payments paid mm-hmm. to the guy who was in charge of payment for the office that Marvell ran under Milton. Huh. So what was he doing there? That's kind <laughs> of the, the, the tantalizing question. And that's what I'm going to sort of be talking about in, in this panel. Essentially what it looks like is he was hired to do certain kinds of translation grunt work right out of undergrad. But yeah. here's the kicker. You have Milton, who is sort of like the, the titan of his, his poetic generation. You have Marvell under him, who's also sort of probably the best poet of his own generation. You have Dryden under him, who <laughs> is essentially the best poet of his generation. How did these guys know each other and what the hell did they talk about? That we have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So th- there's a whole other reason why this might matter. And I'm going to get into that in the panel, but I thought this was a, an interesting moment to crack open Marvell. You know, we, we go so slowly <laughs> and it's because we have <laughs> lives and children yes. that, you know, we're, we're still, <clears throat> excuse me, we're still closing in on, the lyrical ballads were still sort of, you know, knee deep in that. But uh, it, there's all this other great stuff that, you know, we're probably never going to get to in any kind of chronological order that we set out for ourselves. So I thought that this might be a really sort of fun opportunity to take a look at a poet who I, I really admire and whose work I think is not always presented as clearly as it could be. So this is Andrew Marvell. Hmm. All right. If you know Marvell, you probably know him from one poem, which is to, to his coy mistress. And that is really the quintessential carpe diem poem in English. 
had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies fine. I by the tide of Humber would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood, and you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. An hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest, an age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For, lady, you deserve this state, nor what I love at lower rate. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turn to dust, and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace." Now, therefore, while the youthful glue, glue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball, and tear our pleasures with rough strife, thorough the iron gates of life, thus, that we cannot make our sun stand still yet." We will make him run. Right? Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the quintessential Carpe Diem poem. Seize the day. Yes. And yes. It's, it was very much more- a, uh, I, I it, it, it reminded me very much of the flea in the kind of, uh, <laughs> Well, well, and honestly, in the kind of associating, you know, gross bugs with uh, the amorous act, honestly, <laughs> with that uh, worms trying your virginity line. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And uh, none do their embrace. Well, you haven't met Poe yet. But anyway, the, <laughs> there, there is this, you know, sense that mortality is just around the corner. You know, uh, it's it's a really, you know. Somewhat ironic, somewhat playful, but also somewhat serious, you know, seize the day poem, carpe diem poem, poem about, uh, I guess, you know, living your life to the fullest while you can. Written in imitation of, I guess, Latin poetry or, or mm-hmm. antique poetry. Well, it has that, um, it has that kind of, uh, that kind of couplet rhythm that, uh, Alexander Pope was very fond of. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's the couplets, but it's not the heroic couplets. So it, it's, it's only a, a four beat line and it gets its, you know, I think it gets its wit and speed really from that. Right. Now, yeah. this was written by a Puritan, <laughs> which is kind of a strange way to think about it. Marvell was a Puritan. He was more of a moderate Puritan. But he served in Cromwell's government. He sort of kind of sat out the Civil War. He was abroad during that time. And, excuse me, he most likely was a spy. Uh, the, the recent biography of him, um, sort of paints this picture of him engaged in spycraft in some way, shape, or form. But he was also on the continent learning his languages because he, for some reason didn't graduate from college while he was in college his father drowned 
his father mm-hmm. was uh, being piloted across the Humber River in uh, the town of Hull, which is where Marvell was from. His father was a preacher, and he was a prominent member of the the society. And remember, being a minister was also a political appoint uh, appointment. Mm-hmm. But his father uh, was crossing the Humber River. And I guess legend has it that the boatman was maybe drunk, but hit a re or hit a, a, a sandbar and he, he drowned in the river. Marvell mm. was apparently asked to leave college <clears throat> due to some kind of untoward behavior, which it sounds to me as if he was most likely in mourning and most likely drunk and skipping classes or getting into trouble due to that. But in any case, he found himself without a patron, found himself without a father, found himself without a school and had to make some kind of living. So he took a couple of bureaucratic jobs, then cobbled together enough to sort of hit the continent to do a kind of tour to study languages in the hope of coming back and becoming a tutor to an aristocrat. And that's sort of what he did until he found a position in Cromwell's government. Okay. So uh, anyway, the the spycraft was kind of incidental. That comes in and out of the picture. <laughs> but anyway, <Yeah. clears throat> it's just kind of an interesting aspect of him. So anyway, uh, he, he was devoted more or less to the Puritan side. He didn't want Catholic intervention and he, he didn't want a kind of state religion, which sounds strange if you know the protectorate, but he actually wrote for a sort of increase in religious tolerance. So hmm, that's yeah. another aspect of the, the Puritan belief system. You can't force someone to love God. And we sort of went through that when we were doing Paradox Lost, right? Yeah, yeah. So, To His Coy Mistress is the poem that if you learn Marvell at all, if you encounter him at all in high school and I think, or, or, or college, and I think this is becoming more and more rare, sadly, uh, that's the poem that, that you hear and you figure, okay, this is a carpe diem type poem in imitation of antiquity and leave it at that. But that's only one part of his poetic. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Marvell was known for most of the 18th, 19th, and I guess the earlier part of the 20th century, uh, the turn of the century, as a politician. After the protectorate, he went back to Hull and became the representative. He was the MP of Hull for a long, 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 long time. Yeah. And it was a little bit hard scrabble and a little bit of a bureaucratic drudge, but he was held up as the example of someone who, regardless of political persuasion, felt it his duty to serve the population. So he was Marvell the public servant. And his poetry was kind of sort of known about, but he was second string. Mm -hmm. This changes a bit in the early part of the 20th century when T.S. Eliot gets his hands on him. Ah, our uh, (laughs) T.S. Eliot makes his appearance again. (laughs) Yeah, he's sort of like the, the, (laughs) that rogue who we can't escape if we're sort of talking about poetry and poetics in the 20th century. Um, anyway. Eliot 
reinvents Marvel for the the 300th anniversary of Marvel's birth. Elliot writes this essay that shows the uh, for the Times Literary Supplement, which turns Marvel into a metaphysical poet like John Donne. So remember, Donne was cast alongside this other group of poets by Samuel Johnson as being metaphysicals, i.e. a group of poets who take trope to the furthest possible limit in ways that Johnson felt were unseemly or untoward or just ridiculous. Eliot valorizes that group of poets because they're doing something that he wants to do in his poetry. So Eliot looks at Marvell's career and says he's actually closer to someone like John Donne, and his best poems are poems in the metaphysical mode. So, Eliot points to this poem, if I can find it in my book, on a drop of dew. See how the Orient dew shed from the bosom of the morn into the blowing roses, yet careless of its mansion new, for the clear region which was born round in itself encloses, and in its little globe's extent frames as it can its native element. How it, the purple flower, does slight, scarce touching where it lies, but gazing back upon the sky shines with a mournful light like its own tear, because so long divided from the sphere." Restless it rolls and unsecure, trembling lest it grow impure, till the warm sun pity its pain and to the skies exhale it back again. So the soul that dropped that ray of the clear fountain of eternal day, could it within the human flower be seen, remembering still its former height, shuns the sweet leaves and blossoms green, and recollecting its own light, does in its pure encircling thoughts express the greater heaven in an ebon less." And how coy a figure wound every way it turns away. So the world excluding round, yet receiving in the day dark beneath, but bright above, here disdaining there in love, how loose and easy hence to go, how girt and ready to ascend, moving but on a point below, it all about does upwards bend. Such did the manna's sacred dew distill, white and entire, though congealed and chill, congealed on earth, but does, dissolving, run into the glories of the almighty sun. <laughs> Um, it's, it's essentially an extended, an extended metaphor. Mm -hmm. The, the dew, the drop of dew that sits almost hovering on the leaf is sort of in this self-enfolded state, like the pure soul is that then evaporates back up into heaven. Right. Yeah. And it uses a lot of complicated almost Baroque figuration. I mean, look at this <laughs> and how coy a figure wound every way it turns away. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really the most, I, I, I was thinking when I read it, it's the most, uh, optically sophisticated poem I think I've ever read. Uh, oh, it's, <laughs> cause it's all about it's like, the, how, light twisting through a, you know, a globule of water and, and the, you know, the little globe's extent as he says there, but yeah, it was, it was really, uh, it, it was, well, unrelenting makes it sound like a negative thing, but uh, I was really no. struck by just how it, it kept on with that. How does light move through this small globe of water? And, you know, how does that look? How can, you know, how do we express it? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's, it, it's such an exquisite poem. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. And, and it does that thing that done does. It does that thing that the metaphysicals do. It's this weird meditation on the soul. But it's also that, that comparison, you know, taken as far as it can go it, with these turns of phrase that are really just astounding, mm-hmm. right? There are two other poems in Marvel's work that do that. And that's it. So he has three <laughs> metaphysical poems. Huh. Yeah. More or less. There are a couple of others. It's not that he turns away from complicated trope. It's just that this is not, this is not exactly the basis. Calling him a metaphysical sort of misses how, how varied his writing really is. So we started with the Carpe Diem poem, which is very easy to comprehend, right? It's very straightforward. In fact, it almost seems to me sort of like cavalier verse mm-hmm. in, in how clear it is, right? Um, but then we have the drop of dew that is much more meaty and complicated and weird and twisty, right? Yeah. So he can do one thing which is like one set of poets, he can do another thing, which is like another set of poets. And then we have Tom May's death. <clears throat> As one put drunk into the packet boat, Tom May would Tom May was hurried hence and did not know it, but was amazed on the Elysian side, and with an eye uncertain gazing wide, could not determine in what place he was, for whence in Stephen's alley, trees or grass, nor where the Pope he, Pope's head, nor the mitre lay, signs by which still he found and lost his way. These are heroic couplets. We're, mm-hmm. we're back to Pope. Uh, we're back to... <laughs> I guess we we brushed over it, but I guess in our chronology of you know working through Johnson and everything, we're in that 18th century or that restoration satirical heroic couplet mode. Mm-hmm. Tom May was uh, a, a poet and author who, before the English Civil War, had written a bunch of encomia for King Charles the First, and then when he was denied. Uh, a, a sort of courtly patronage, he started writing a bunch of panegyrics for the parliament. Yeah. And so he, <laughs> he became kind of the figure for a, a, a turncoat. And, you know, Marvell was ostensibly on the parliamentarian side, but he's writing a satire of this guy after he died. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, lambasting the fact that he's too slippery. You can't mm-hmm. pin him down, right? And <clears throat> he also sort of brings Ben Johnson into this because May apparently st- either met and knew Ben Johnson or styled himself after Johnson and styled his writing after Johnson. This is Ben Johnson, the playwright and public poet, and not Samuel Johnson, the critic who comes later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Samuel Johnson in the Elysian Fields uh, is the one who kicks Tom May out. <laughs> so this anticipates the kind of social satire and poetic satire that you see, you know, later on with someone like Dryden. And here's another sort of, uh, I guess, point of contact. Dry- one of Dryden's most famous um, poetic satires is this poem called MacFleckno, called "Son of," basically "Son of Fleckno," where mm-hmm. Fleckno is- was this notoriously bad. Uh, English poet. <clears throat> and 
Dryden wants to satirize this, you know, poetic enemy of his own. And so he has, <coughs> excuse me, this poet Shadwell crowned the son of Fleckno because he inherits, you know, Fleckno's almighty dullness. Well, <laughs> Marvell on his grand tour had met Fleckno in Rome and had even done his own satire against Fleckno. So there are these weird points of contact between all of these poets. So you've got Marvell, the the sort of carpe diem, almost cavalier poet. You've got Marvell, the drop of dew, the metaphysical poet. You've got Marvell, the social satirist. And then you've got this interesting little number. An oration owed upon Cromwell's return from Ireland. (laughs) Yes. So, Daniel, inform our listeners what Cromwell was doing in Ireland. Oh, well, (laughs) this one was a little jarring to read, given that uh, long-term listeners will know that I I myself am largely of extraction from the old Emerald Isle. Um, So Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, we know the the triumphant – leader of the parliamentarian forces in the English Civil War. By uh, around 1848-49, the the parliamentarians became very concerned about the threat from the island of Ireland. Of course, they're always uh, fretting about the threat from Ireland over there in London, aren't they? Um, But this was, I guess, from the standpoint of them, a fairly credible one in that uh, the – Early on in the sort of the the English Civil War, or rather the whole complex of wars that was the English Civil War, um, around 1640, there had been a a large scale revolt on Ireland of the local kind of Catholic elite, uh, who of course had been uh, had been taken down a few pegs, beginning with uh, the uh, attentions of Queen Elizabeth uh, a couple of generations before. There had been a very concerted attempt to bring Ireland to heel, which took on, of course, a religious caste as Protestantism became the official, uh, or what was, was, you know, there was the struggle to make Protestantism the official, uh, uh, faith of, uh, England and the, and the monarchy. But in the 1640, oh, sorry, go ahead. If I can interrupt you really quickly there, a poetic aside, Two uh, poets who took part in putting down the the Irish uh, rebellion during Elizabeth, who also committed what were ostensibly war crimes, mm-hmm. were uh, Edmund Spencer and Walter Raleigh. Oh, yes. <laughs> Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen, basically a, a sort of stunning epic or pseudo-epic. And Walter Raleigh, who introduced tobacco, but was also uh, quite an accomplished writer in in his own right, Mm -hmm. as well as a courtier and all kinds of other things. Yes, yes. Uh, So, yes, so this all it it really is astonishing just how the the sort of the elite of English letters and the elite of English elites (laughs) were all kind of very, very, very much lined up in this period. So anyway, uh, it's it's 1649. um, And really, Ireland had been de facto independent since 1641, right? The, the parliamentarians didn't have the, the, the resources to go after them at that point. 
And at this point, and by this point, they had, uh, it was basically a de facto independent state, which had pledged its loyalty to Charles. And we can't have that. So, uh, <laughs> Cromwell led a massive, uh, expedition of parliamentary forces, uh, in an invasion of Ireland and really, uh, just laid waste to the island, um, in, in a way that was shocking even to contemporaries. Um, and the, uh, there was the famous, uh, siege and, and sacking of Wexford. There are another number of other times where just entire towns were just burned down with everyone trapped inside. Um, at least 50,000 Irish people were basically enslaved. They were, uh, rounded up and sentenced to transportation to the new world, uh, which is, of course, a euphemism for, you know, forced labor, uh, a sentence yeah. of forced labor across the world. At least 50,000, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter million Irish people dead from the yeah. effects of military occupation, famine, uh, disease, plague, just horrendous. Uh, yet, yet another in the list of, uh, atrocities <laughs> inflicted upon yeah. that island by its neighbor island. Um, and so Marvell, though, you know, he's a good parliamentarian. Horatio, uh, you know, and Cromwell returns from Ireland, you know, pretty much utterly triumphant. You know, the, the, whatever kind of like set battles were going to happen, Cromwell was there and, and just blew it out of the water. Um, everything, it was kind of all over but the shouting at this point. But of course, the Irish are very good at shouting. So there were a couple more years <laughs> of, a couple more years of, of really grueling guerrilla warfare left for Cromwell's, uh, subordinates who were left in charge. But Cromwell gets to come back home to a, to a bit of a Triumph, and uh, Marvell wrote a triumphal this is a Horatian ode upon Cromwell's return from Ireland, and boy howdy, it's a real doozy to read <laughs> with that oh. kind of like. Anyway, yeah, that's, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, man. That's that's the weird thing. Uh, critics have, and I kind of agree with this. They see it as equivocal at best. Uh, it's it's really ambivalent. Yeah. You can put some pressure on certain parts of the poem and you kind of sort of have to wonder, okay, is this really praising Cromwell? Like what exactly is he doing here? And it's, it's a poem that's, that's a little shaky in, in exactly how it's working. The, the forward youth that would appear must now forsake his muses dear, nor in the shadows sing his numbers languishing. Tis time to leave the books in dust and oil the unused armor's rust, removing from the wall the corslet <laughs> of the hall. So restless Cromwell could not cease in the inglorious arts of peace, but through adventurous war urged, urged his active star. Okay. So one of the things that you can kind of see here, all right, was this faded? Was mm. this him pushing his, quote unquote, active star into action? Or is this him sort of taking it on and doing it himself in a way that breaks the boundaries of what you are supposed to do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Who's, yeah. who's really acting here? Yeah. And like uh, the, the three fourths lightning. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the, that, um, that ambivalence, there was, there was a passage that really jumped out to me about like that kind of ambivalent uh, kind of attitude toward this and what, what kind of triumph it was where a little bit, a little bit later in the poem, it says though justice against fate complain and plead the ancient rights in vain, 
but those do hold yes. or break as men are strong or weak. That's a pretty bald faced, like, like, look, this doesn't have anything to do with justice. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, I mean, that's one of those moments where like, w- then what is this about? Right. Yeah. And yeah. if we would speak true much to the man as do who from his private gardens, where he lived reserved and austere as if his highest plot to plant the bergamot could by industrious valor climb to ruin the great work of time. Is that praise? Yeah. To ruin the great work of time and cast the kingdoms old into another mold. All right. So usually, you know, there's the biblical uh, valence of cast them out, right? Mm-hmm. Or to cast them down. But he turns that from casting as throwing into casting as sculpture to cast into a mold. Well, one, it's it's a fantastic turn. It takes your expectation and sort of tweaks it. And that seems to be the hope. Oh, Claude, I think I lost you there. That perhaps this isn't a destruction, but a change, right? Hello? But, and that leads you exactly to where you were, though justice against fate complain and plead the ancient okay. rights in vain. Um you're right. This isn't about justice, is it? <clears throat> or maybe it is. Not quite sure. But anyway, that 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 shift into casting it, it, it takes your expectation and then you know turns it around, and then we get back to that question of whether or not this is about justice. And then he gets really weird when he starts talking about Charles the First. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, uh, "What field of all the civil wars where his were not the deepest scars?" Uh, so Cromwell was on the front lines, essentially. <clears throat> and Hampton shows what part he had of wiser art, where twining subtle fears with hope, he wove a net of such a scope that Charles himself might chase to Carisbrook's narrow case. Uh, Hampton was sort of where he ended up sort of making the, the, the end game to get Charles the first and arrest him that thence the Royal actor born, the tragic scaffold might adorn while round the armed bands did clap their bloody hands. He nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But with his keener eye, the axe's edge did try, nor called the gods with vulgar spite to vindicate his helpless right, but bowed his comely head down as upon a bed. 
Are we talking about Cromwell observing the beheading of the king? Or are we talking about Charles I being beheaded? Whose perspective is this? Yeah. It, it really gets being muddled actually beheaded. in there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, and, I'm glad you say that it's muddled because I was having some trouble actually parsing that myself. Uh, so I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad to know that that was maybe intentional on the poet's part. I, I think that was intentional because the, the, the beheading of the king really was a controversial act, uh, even though Marvell joins yeah. the protectorate. It, even amongst the Puritans, it, it was a controversial thing. Mm-hmm. Do we actually execute the king? Milton wrote in defense of it. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, you know, well, we all know, you know, Milton, Milton, Milton was pretty, there, uh, he was pretty hard edged. He was, he was ahead of his time in some ways. Yes, he was. But in any case, so that's what I'm saying is that with the Horatian Ode, which is an occasional poem, i.e. a poem for an occasion, such as Dryden eventually, eventually will write as poet laureate. He's mm-hmm. ambivalent about some of the things that are going on, even though it's his job to praise. And mm-hmm. that's another trait you're going to see in Dryden. Dryden has to praise Charles II, sometimes for things that are maybe a little bit sketchy. Uh, how do you yeah. navigate public praise, public poetry with valuing the truth. So you get this ambivalence. But then there's the mower against gardens. Luxurious man to bring his vice Mm -hmm. in use did after him the world seduce. And from the fields, the flowers and plants allure when nature was most plain and pure. He first enclosed within the garden square a dead and standing pool of air and a more luscious earth for them did need, which stupefied them while it fed. The pink grew then as double as his mind. The nutriment did change the kind. What with strange perfumes he did the roses taint and flowers themselves were taught to paint. The tulip white did for complexion and seek and learned to interline its cheek its onion root they then so high did hold that one for a meadow was sold all right <laughs> where where have we seen another poet writing about gardens and gardening and i guess the importation of foreign elements into a garden as an offense to d- divine justice and uh, a sort of <laughs> metaphysical sense of quote unquote nature um well it does sound a lot like milton uh <laughs> Does it not? It's kind of, I guess, it, it does. And I, I, I you know, this, that's one of those. I know you're, you're setting up a, a gimme for me, but I'm always happy when I get those. <laughs> but yeah, so he's got this poem. He's got a couple of poems where he's writing about gardens, where he's not really writing about gardens. He's taking the pastoral, but he's using a lot of the same aesthetic and political terms that I think someone like Milton is using as well. Right. Yeah. I do so, think it's very funny that he, uh, he sort of makes some, he makes an allusion to the, uh, I presume he's making an allusion to the, uh, to the tulip speculation craze 
when he talks yeah. about how a tulip, it's onion root, then so high did hold that one for a meadow was sold. Cause that would have been, that would have been kind <laughs> exactly. of contemporary with all this was the, was the beanie babies bubble that was, uh, tuna, tulip bulbs <laughs> in, uh, in, in Holland at the time in the Netherlands. <laughs> Exactly. No, that's that's exactly it. And it's yeah. and it's a, an offense against nature because it's misuse of the land, right? Or at least mm-hmm. according mm-hmm. to to Marvell. So then you have this kind of like Puritan aesthetic thing sort of coming through. And so his his pastoral poems, he has uh he sort of reinvents the pastoral where instead of shepherds and shepherdesses, it's the gardener and the the I guess farm made he sort of sees in the garden. Um, and it's, it's very playful in its self-conscious contemporizing. And yet it's also got this sort of edge to it about, you know, what is nature? What do we account nature? How do we, we, we think through these things? So it's, it's really sort of fascinating. He occupies a couple of different modes. So he's got the, the sort of modeled on antiquity. Those poems, the Carpe Diem poems, the pastorals, mm-hmm. he's got the ambivalent public verse, which has to navigate between praise and truth. He's got the metaphysical writing. He's got the public satire. He's got all these things. He yeah. has a foot in a couple of different poetic modes. And for me, what's interesting when you look at his whole career is that he does some of what came before and he anticipates some of what's going to come after. So he's got a foot, you know, imagine him with five feet and he's got five legs and five feet in five different camps, right? So to yeah, say that he's yeah. just a metaphysical really kind of misses the point. Uh, to say he's just the Carpe Diem poet really kind of misses the point. To say that he's just the, <laughs> yeah. the public poet really misses the point. He's kind of straddling all these worlds and he can honestly do all of them very well. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's really, this is, this is a fascinating, uh, I, I really, I was, I was unfamiliar with him, um, Entirely, uh, except for I had heard the the first couple lines of To His Coy Mistress before, because I recognized that had we but world enough and time. And I'm thinking now, and I can't remember if maybe that was used as the title of a Star Trek Next Generation episode, because that's the kind of thing <laughs> they like likely. to do. I, I don't know where I first heard it, but <laughs> it's, well, it's but he has a really, a, a really a kind of. Yeah, it's a, he's a really clearly a a very versatile poet. I mean, he's created these masterful, you know, little gems uh, in so many sort of modes of, uh, of the, of the art. Yeah. And what I sort of get drawn into is the way, weirdly though, I think Elliot, you know, pigeonholes him in a way that he doesn't deserve to be pigeonholed. There is a kind of distance or remove to a lot of his verse where, you know, even something like To His Coy Mistress seems like a performance. And you don't quite know the quote unquote personality behind the performance. It's not mm-hmm. gushing in sort of personal detail. Though, if you know the biography, which I'm in the process of reading, 
you can find the personal details and you can see these weird moments where things come out. Uh, Humber was the river in Hull where his father died. Mm, and yeah. that's where he would sit and complain until the world ends for his you know, mistress. There are a couple of other poems that are really fascinatingly weird that seem to come from certain kinds of personal anguish. Uh, I believe The mm-hmm. Unfortunate Lover is one of those pseudo-metaphysical poems which describes uh, uh, a shipwreck. And the love is compared to a shipwreck. And one of the partners dies in a shipwreck, but the shipwreck is a kind of weird birth into death or into a life of sorrow. It's it's a very strange metaphor, but it's tied back to his father. Uh, there are these other weird moments, the nymph complaining for, his, for her fawn, where there seems to be this very wrenching identification with, I guess, a woman losing someone dear to her. So it, he's, hmm, yeah. he has these weird kind of personal moments, but through the mask of the poetry in a lot of ways. And if you know where to find them, you can look for them. But there's this kind of distance and remove where it's not sort of like 20th and 21st century confessional, let me gush it all out. It's like the poem is a mechanism for for um, thinking through something with these weird touches coming in from the side, if you know what to look for. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I think that's probably what Elliot was responding to. And maybe I'm responding to what it responded to. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, <laughs> that's that's my brief song and dance on Marvell. And if you want to hear some more about the relationship or or postulations on the relationship between Milton Marvell and Dryden, then come on down to Intelligent Speech and sign up for the panel. Or well, don't sign up for the panel. Come watch the panel, and we'll talk about other kinds of sort of tantalizing mysteries and lostness in language and literature. Yes, and uh, and remember, if you are a Cannonball listener, you can use the promo code CANNON, C-A-N-O-N, <laughs> when you're buying your Intelligent Speech tickets to get a special discount, and it helps support uh, myself, Claude, and producer Josh. Yep. All right, so hope to see you there. We'll be talking Borges, and I'll be talking Milton, Marvell, and Dryden. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.